Thank you. Good morning, everyone. We're continuing in a series of messages called Seasons Feelings. And what we're trying to do every December is basically prepare our hearts for celebrating the arrival, the birth of Jesus. And many of us go to great lengths in order to prepare our homes to be just right in order to celebrate Christmas. So here are a couple of pictures from our home. The first one is our Christmas tree, and this is a real tree. And I made certain that it was centered in that window. You you could measure, and that angel on the top is exactly the same distance from either side of that window. And then this next one here, this is the above our kitchen sink, and this is the one I really like. We've got the reindeer, and then there's an angel, and then a couple of smaller little pictures, and the, a little pen lights going through it. And, but we put up all kinds of decorations. We get out the, uh, the shoe box, the Aldo shoe box with the Christmas music in it, and we do all of that to celebrate Christmas. But we want to be even more intentional as we prepare our hearts, just as we prepare our homes for the birth of Jesus Christ. So this um, season on the church calendar is commonly referred to as Advent. And many of you grew up in a tradition where Advent was talked about a lot. And it's been recognized for centuries It's being celebrated by millions of Christians around the world right at this time. And these four weeks are meant to be a time of preparation. They're a time when we prepare for the arrival of Jesus, and all the external adornments are meant to trigger this internal anticipation so that we're fully prepared to celebrate the significance of what happened. But the word Advent also means coming. So Advent's a time when we celebrate the fact that Jesus came, but it also contains a second piece here. And this is something that gets missed most of the time, but it's also a time when we celebrate and we anticipate the fact that Jesus will come again. And we'll talk about the similarities and the differences between those in our message on Christmas Eve. So we celebrate the birth of Jesus, and then we celebrate the return of Jesus. And during the Christmas season, I don't think very many of us actually think about that fact. They don't think about the second coming of Jesus. But those two things should go together. That Jesus came the first time, and he will come again. One person described it this way. He said, we need to learn to live in the already, but the not yet. So Jesus has already come, so we celebrate that, but he hasn't yet come a second time. So we anticipate that, and that's the Advent season. So what does that look like? Like If you have a young child in your home, you're probably getting a good idea of what Advent is like. Because a young child sees the tree all decorated. They see presents under the tree. They may even be told that this one is specifically for them. So they want to get into that gift. Like our oldest daughter, Brittany, like she would open the presents and then rewrap them again. And we'd always see this scruffy-looking present. Yep, Brittany's been at work again. And 
they keep asking, you know, is it Christmas yet? Is it Christmas? And say, no, not yet. And then they'd ask the next day, is today Christmas? No, no, not yet. So it's tough because the present has already been given. They can see it there under the tree, but they can't open it yet. And then kids get into counting how many presents I have compared to how many you have, or they'll look at the size of their pile, and it's bigger than their siblings. And we can get all kinds of issues going on there. But we live between the already and the not yet. Jesus was born. The present's been given. It's all wrapped up. It's got your name on it. We celebrate that but it won't be fully received until Jesus returns again. So the challenge with waiting is that the longer we wait, the easier it is to kind of lose hope. You don't mind waiting for a while, but after a certain amount of waiting, we get a little restless. And that's what we see going on with the children of God. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. They've been waiting so long. Like there was a lot of hopelessness in Jerusalem. Like just think about how long they were waiting. Like way back in Genesis chapter 3 was the first actual prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And now, not years, but centuries have passed and still nothing has happened. And they've had over 300 prophecies that have been written during this time. They've seen them all. And they're pointing to the birth of Jesus. But still, no Messiah. And after enough time passes, people start to get a little defeated, and they get hopeless. Now, many of you are probably aware of this, but there was a 400-year period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And here's the big word for the day. This is referred to as the intertestamental period. So it was between the two testaments. And there were no messages from God through the prophets during that time. So the people had been waiting, and they just didn't know how much longer they were going to have to wait. It seemed like God was AWOL. And they were just wondering, like, where is he? And the people in Jerusalem were probably so tired of waiting, they'd just given up. And they said, well, there's just never going to be a Messiah. The walls of Jerusalem had been built by Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the last book written chronologically in the Old Testament. And now those 400 years have passed, and Rome is now in charge. The the people of Jerusalem are now prisoners in their own city. And they're waiting for God to rescue them. And after waiting long enough, you just start to lose hope. Maybe you're living in a season right now where you're waiting for God to rescue you in, in some way or another. And it just hasn't happened. And the longer you wait, the more frustrated you become. We're just not good at waiting. We don't like waiting for anything. Now, I've never been to uh, Disney World. Like growing up in a farm, and I didn't mention PEI, but because like, I did that in the first service. Somebody criticized me, said, in every sermon you mentioned PEI, so I was trying not to do that. But growing up on a farm in, in the 60s and 70s, there wasn't much extra money going around, so we couldn't afford to go to Florida. And then the second thing, 
we couldn't get anybody else to milk our cows, so we would have had to haul 40 milk cows along with us to Florida. So that didn't work out. And then being in the ministry, there's not a lot of extra cash flowing, and so we didn't take our daughters to Disney World either. I'm hoping that someday one of them will haul us along with their family when they go. But I've lived vicariously through others that have gone to Florida. And one of the things they've mentioned is the weights that you have, the lineups to get onto rides or to enter into different attractions. And the only people that I know that have beaten that are the Boyer family. Like Peter and Debbie took their kids and her mom and father and Peter's mother. And two of the grandparents had physical issues at the time and they needed to be in wheelchairs. So they had a, a great time because they would just go to the wheelchair lineup while everybody else was lined up for hours on end and go through quickly. So if you're going to Disney World, just put someone in a wheelchair. <laughs> they might not then let you on the, the uh, roller coaster or anything like that if you <laughs> step up out of the wheelchair. But then like, I've been told that Disney is trying to do what they can to make the waits tolerable. So they have signs that will say, like, you have one day until you get on this ride. Or, but, then, but usually it's more like one hour, if you're at this point, one hour until you get on, or maybe 45 minutes, or, or 30, or 15, or something like that. But the line doesn't feel like it's moving, but at least when you see those signs, you get this feeling, you know, the weight is going to be uh, tolerable. So these checkpoints are designed to let you know that the line is moving. Now, wouldn't it be great if we had signs like that in other areas of life? Like you've been trying to get a job, you've been waiting for a long time for a job, and then you see a sign that says, in three months you will have a job. And you'll think, three more months of, of unemployment? But at least I know that I'm going to have a job. Or maybe you're thinking, I, I want to get married, and it feels like I've been waiting for a long time. And, and then there's a sign that says, like, you will be married in two years' time. And you'll think, wow, two years, that's kind of a long wait, but at least I know that it, it's going to happen. Or maybe you've been waiting for your husband to remember to put the toilet seat down just once, and you see the signs, not going to happen in your <laughs> lifetime. So if there was a sign that said, you've just got this much longer to wait, it would be so much easier. Yet that's not the line we find ourselves in. We don't see those signs. And the people in Jerusalem the night before Christmas they just don't know. They've been waiting a long time. And after enough days of asking, like, is it today? And being told, not yet, they start to lose hope. Now, some of you can probably understand this. Maybe you've been waiting for God to rescue you from cancer, and you're waiting on him, and it's not happening. Or maybe you've been waiting for him to fix your finances or to heal your marriage or to help you overcome some type of addiction or, or maybe just to bring some justice to the person who hurt you. You've been waiting and nothing is happening. And for a long time you felt hopeful and told yourself, well, God's going to make this right 
but it doesn't seem as if he's doing anything. He's not coming to the rescue, and you start to lose a little bit of hope. So when we start to feel hopeless, here's what we tend to do. And I'm sure this was true for the people in Jerusalem. The first thing we do is we become independent. We start to think, okay, here's the line I'm waiting in. Here's the struggle that I'm dealing with. And God, he doesn't seem to be coming through for me, at least not on my time schedule. So I'm just going to start to do this on my own. It doesn't look like rescue is coming, so I guess I'm going to have to put my hope in myself. And there's something about that that's pretty appealing, and this is the way that some of you have lived your life for a long time. You learned early on that you couldn't count on other people, so you started to just kind of live for yourself and trust in yourself. You put other people at a distance, And maybe you've kept God at a distance as well. You've decided that I'm the only person that I can count on. You've put your hope on you. And that might work for a while, but eventually you'll discover that there are some things that yourself can't take care of. It doesn't work to put hope in yourself. Yourself can't control your spouse's feelings. Yourself can't control the diagnosis of the doctors. Yourself can't control the accident that takes place on the highway. And so you try to take care of it on your own. And when that doesn't work, then we become more indignant. We become angry. We become resentful towards God and towards life because things haven't worked out the way that we wanted them to. God hasn't come through like we thought that he should. One survivor of the Holocaust said, look, is this the best God can do? Then maybe he should resign and let someone more competent take his place. And while you might not have the courage to use those words, there are some of you who can relate to that. You're angry and you're tired of waiting and you are just wondering when God is going to act. You start to become more and more discouraged and defeated. And then at some point, that just kind of turns to anger. As hope begins to go, bitterness arrives. And then that leads to indifference. And that's actually a survival instinct. We just can't let ourselves care anymore. And then we end up living with this whatever approach. We don't want to hope anymore because we're so tired of being disappointed. And so our hearts just kind of grow cold and hard. Lewis Smeads, I put this up on the screen. He put it this way. He said, waiting is our destiny. As creatures, we cannot buy, who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, We wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending we cannot write. And we wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Waiting is the hardest work of hope. And that was so true in Jerusalem. There was a lot of hopelessness. They'd been waiting for a long time. But there are two examples of people in the city of Jerusalem the night before Christmas who continue to hope in God and to wait expectantly and joyfully. And the first person that we're introduced to is Simeon. 
He's in the temple in Jerusalem. Mary and Joseph come into the temple with Jesus as a very young baby because they are dedicating him as required by law, and they meet Simeon there. So we pick this up in Luke 2, 25. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And the phrase I want to draw your attention to is eagerly waiting. Like We don't eagerly wait for anything. Like I can't really think of an example. We anxiously wait. We excitedly wait. But to eagerly wait is different. So let's say you go into a grocery store and you come to the checkout and there are two lines and one's longer than the other. We don't just put ourselves into the longer line and say, this is no problem. I enjoy taking my time. Like, we'll go in and we'll see two lines exactly the same and we'll go into this one and then we'll mark the guy in the blue ball cap who was where we would have been in the other line. And if he gets through before we do... <clears throat> chose the wrong line. So nobody waits eagerly like that. Here are some other adverbs to describe how we wait. We wait anxiously, angrily, exasperatingly, nauseatingly, frustratingly, demandingly, and of course, cantankerously. When put in a position where we aren't getting what we want, we don't eagerly wait. We get cantankerous. We don't do well with it. But Simeon, he's been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and yet he waits eagerly. Now, we don't actually know how old he is, but Luke goes on to tell us this in the rest of that verse. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So it seems that Simeon is old enough to be beyond the average expected life time of that age. And then in verse 29, when Simeon finally gets to hold Jesus, he prays, and the first thing he prays is, Now, Lord, you can let me, your servant, die in peace as you said. So he's ready to go. He's been waiting a long time, and he's ready to go to heaven. Last week, I was visiting a 95-year-old man. He's been a Christian since he was 45, and he's ready to go, but his body keeps recuperating, and he's back home again. Each time he goes into the hospital, like maybe this is the end. He's ready to go home. And Simeon was that way. And then in verse 36, we're introduced to a woman in the temple in Jerusalem. There was a prophetess, Anna, from the family of Phanael in the tribe of Asher. Anna was very old. She had once been married for seven years. Then her husband died, and she was a widow of 84 years. So Luke tells us that this woman in the temple... Her husband had died after seven years of marriage. She's now 84 years of age, and she's been waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's neat how Luke gives us some details here to help us 
be able to accept the facts here. If you're unsure about the details, he tells us, you know, this woman, her name's Anna, her father's name is, she's from this tribe. Here's how long she's been waiting. Here's how old she is right now. So he gives us the facts to check out. And then look at what we read about Anna as we continue on. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. So we read about these two people. They've been waiting a long time. A long line of generations have come and gone. They've been waiting. Simeon was waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. Anna was waiting for the child to come and rescue Jerusalem. But they had not lost hope. And I want you to notice that they weren't waiting passively. Their idea of waiting wasn't just standing in the lineup, just kind of staring at the head of the person behind them. And it wasn't waiting in a waiting room, reading a, a Sports Illustrated magazine that's 10 years old. I don't know why they can't get up-to-date copies of those. You're reading old hockey news. But that's not what they were doing. But they were actively waiting. And this teaches us so much about how we are to wait. So as we remember and celebrate the birth of Christ, and as we anticipate the return of Jesus, we should wait as they waited. We should wait eagerly. Simeon was devout. He was committed. He was righteous. We read about Anna being a woman who praises God night and day in the temple. She fasts and she prays and she tells everyone about the hope that is coming. And so they were waiting for Jesus to come and rescue. But they're not just standing around. They're eagerly waiting to be rescued. So I just want to encourage some of you this Advent season and if it feels like God has been absent this Christmas, if it feels like this season of life would be best described as you know, God not showing up when I thought he would, if you feel like the people of Jerusalem where you've been waiting for a rescuer, like I understand. Like you, I pray that God would rescue us, that he would rescue from abuse and injustice, that he would provide rescue for our persecuted brothers and sisters, that he would provide rescue for orphans, for us from cancer and from divorce and mental illness and loneliness. God, rescue us. Like, we're ready to be rescued. But while we wait, we have hope. We live between, as that person said, the already and the not yet. We have a promise so that we don't give up. When Anna declared in the temple on that night before Christmas, we celebrate here, a rescuer is coming, a deliverer is coming, and he has not forgotten you. You may have lost your faith, you, you may have been faithless, but he has been faithful to you through all of this. God has not abandoned you. And I don't know how much longer it's going to be. I don't know what that sign would say, like your wait to this, from this point is this long, 
I don't know how long that's going to be, but I know that God has that date circled on his calendar, and he knows exactly when our rescuer, Jesus Christ, will come again. 